give them one of these as uh, entertaining because it is got lots of cartoons in it. And uh, many of the entries I've tried to make as humorous as possible. And I often hear from people saying that they enjoy reading it. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's all good here. And I'm ready for some leftovers after our discussion last week. I was giving you some thanks for some of the entries in the book that set me straight. And you thanked me for some of the captions on the cartoons, which I was very happy to hear that you enjoyed those. And we were also promoting the book because uh, this is the time of year that we put the book on sale on the William James website at wmjasco.com. We sell the book for $15. We give free shipping. We don't charge any sales tax because in Oregon, we don't have sales tax. So how is that? All the Californians can log on to our site and buy the book there, and they won't have to pay the sales tax. You're in a sales tax state, Washington. Oh, yes. We have no income tax, so our sales taxes are pretty steep. Mm-hmm. What is your sales tax rate? Well, it varies. Uh, cities have... Some, too. I couldn't tell you right off the bat what the most widespread one is. Yeah. But property taxes and sales taxes and business taxes have to pick up all the slack. Uh, right now in Washington, the state Supreme Court is holding the legislature in contempt for not sufficiently funding education, public education, as the Constitution requires. And they've been trying to get the legislators to raise more taxes. And it's been very tough. They just went through a session where they did some changes and the Supreme Court went back and said, that's not enough. Got to go back and write a new budget. It's a real battle. And a popular uh, destination for tax avoidance is Vancouver, Washington, right across the river from Portland. Yes, uh, we have a branch campus at Washington State University where I used to work. And when we were hiring faculty to teach in Vancouver, after they got it clear that this was Vancouver in Washington and not Vancouver in British Columbia, um, we'd say, well, you can live and earn your living in a state that doesn't have any income tax and go shopping in a state that doesn't have any sales tax. And that was a little subsidy for underpaid English teachers. Exactly. <laughs> there is a super mall. What do they call those things? A big box mall just across the river from Vancouver that I'm sure stays in business in large part because Vancouver shoppers come over to do all their large purchases in, in Oregon where they can stay away from the sales tax, but still live in Washington where they don't have any income tax. And your property tax situation is also good? <laughs> no, we have high property taxes. High property tax. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Well, we get plenty of property tax, plenty of income tax here in Oregon, but no sales tax. We also have pretty substantial um, business taxes, business and operation taxes, which get criticized all the time. But Seattle, of mm -hmm. course, is booming, uh, although they give breaks to companies like Amazon and Boeing. But um, it doesn't seem to be discouraging businesses at all from coming here. They're just flocking in. Yeah. So when you make a purchase, an online purchase, uh, you are paying sales tax, correct? 
It depends yeah. on where it's shipped from. Uh, and some courts have ruled that all of them should pay taxes. And uh, Amazon still, if it ships from a warehouse within Washington state, then they do charge the sales tax. Mm-hmm. But I bought a 65-inch ultra-high-def TV recently from Amazon. But technically, it was from a dealer who works through Amazon and ships from someplace like Colorado Mm. and saved a bundle by not paying the state sales tax. Uh I feel a little guilty about that because as a former public employee at a public university, um, my income was derived largely from the sales tax. And when I used to buy things in the store and the clerk would say, and that'll be 27 cents for the governor. I say, no, that's 27 cents for me, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, right. Governor wasn't quite that corrupt, right? No. Anyway, you were talking about the book being on sale. Right. And uh, here in Oregon, there is no sales tax. So if we ship a book from here, you won't be charged any sales tax. You'll get free shipping. The book is on sale for $15, down from 19 through the rest of the year. So from now until the end of this year... Please go buy the book. And we're going to give you some reasons to buy the book because we're going to talk about some of the content. Um, I want to talk about some of the things that I am grateful for to you for having in the book. And you wanted to mention a few more cartoons. We left off with talking about some cartoons last time. I was having fun with that. Let's do some more. Well, one reason to buy the book is that it makes a great gift because if you feel the itch to correct somebody's English but uh, don't want to be rude, you can give them one of these as uh, entertaining because it is got lots of cartoons in it. And uh, many of the entries I've tried to make as humorous as possible. And I often hear from people saying that they enjoy reading it. So I think it takes some of the sting out of it. I was having dinner with some friends recently where uh, they were talking about moving some uh, large furniture around using a dolly and I had to bite my tongue to say, okay, what you're describing is not a dolly. It's a hand cart because he was miming, you know, this thing that, with handles that stick up and that you lean back to take a big box on. Uh, a dolly has a flat platform with wheels on it. Yeah. And that's what the uh, guy in the auto repair shop lies on his back underneath your car when it's up on the hoist. Now, that's a dolly. The other thing is either a hand cart or a hand truck. And for that one, you chose a very nice illustration of a little girl with a doll and a woman saying of her, she's confusing her words again. Last night, she couldn't sleep and was crying for her hand cart. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, sorry to laugh at my own joke. Well, it's amusing to me to think about some poor girl crying in her sleep for her hand cart anyway. Well, another one that uh, is actually related in the direction of having to do with wheels was uh, the Risky and Risque, R-I-S-K-Y and R-I-S-Q-U-E with an accent over the E. Mm-hmm. And the entry reads, people unfamiliar with the French-derived word risque, slightly indecent, often write risky by mistake. Bungee jumping is risky, but nude bungee jumping is risque. And uh, evidently that set you off. You found this cartoon of a sort of fairy-like being, except she's carrying the winged caducus, 
uh, which is usually associated with Mercury, balancing on top of a winged wheel. This is a very peculiar image. I have no idea what the original context was. She's wearing a rather diaphanous dress that's blowing, looks to be transparent, essentially, with one breast showing in the classical style that Europeans from Renaissance on love to depict what Kenneth Clark used to call the slipped tunic or the one breast showing as it's sort of not quite nude but uh, your caption is angela's flying wheel routine a little bit risky a little bit risque <laughs> yeah that struck me as very ingenious <laughs> well uh obviously picked up on your nude bungee jumping which also is risky and risque <laughs> Yeah, but that was a good image. I mean, there's an example of a cartoon that really needs a caption. Uh, when I found that image, I knew it was perfect, but I didn't know what for. And then I somehow put it together with your risky, risque entry and uh, came up with something pretty good. So you don't have any idea what it was originally about? Uh, no, I don't. I don't have the context for any of these images originally. A few of them came out of, uh, they were line art from old Harper's magazine, but not that one. The third one I wanted to talk about was Shook and Shaken. Mm -hmm. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the simple past of Shake is Shook. I shook my piggy bank. But if you need a auxiliary or helping verb, and then, by the way, I tend to avoid technical grammatical terms. So instead of auxiliary, I use the word helping. Mm -hmm. I think that may lead some people who are really into this sort of thing to look down their noses a bit at it. But uh, I try to use simple language that is easy to grasp. You don't need any special training. Mm -hmm. um, so if you need a helping verb, you need shaken the quarterback had shaken the champagne bottle before emptying it on the coach. Mm, yes. And you notice, although I'm making this uh, literary point, I try to make it a very down-to-earth example. Yeah. But I began the entry by saying Elvis Presley couldn't very well have sung I'm All Shaken Up. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the grammatically correct form. Yeah. So I'm acknowledging that in common usage, you do get that form. So you found a very heavily dressed, sort of Teutonic looking uh, medieval gentleman with a huge harp. Uh, and he says his unpopular act included grammatically correct hits of the 50s, all with harp accompaniment, all shaken up. Whom do you love? There is a whole lot of shaking going on, etc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how much time did you spend thinking up those examples? <laughs> well, uh, not too much. Not too much. Uh, Whom Do You Love is one of my favorites, because whenever I hear it on the radio, it's been a long-standing joke of mine to ruin the song for everyone by saying, shouldn't it be Whom Do You Love? <laughs> doesn't really dawn on anybody, I don't think, ever hearing the song Who Do You Love, <laughs> that it should be Whom Do You Love, and apologies to Bo Diddley <laughs> from that. Uh. I may have ruined his song for some people over the years. So I didn't think too long about thinking of how those songs would appear in grammatically correct form. I did one for the calendar that was an update of that, uh, Hits of the 60s. And uh, I was pretty happy to think that uh, Bob Dylan's song might have been written very badly as, um, I am not going to work on Maggie's Farm anymore. You're right. Ah. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Bob Dylan, for not being grammatically correct on that one. Yeah, this is an example of a highly educated guy who uh, deliberately <laughs> uses uneducated speech to give a folky touch to a lot of his songs. Yes, you're right. Yeah, I did like the image, though. The guy looks like he just stepped out of a Ren Fair um, with his harp, and he looks so serious. <laughs> Very earnest. He's going to be performing for you tonight. And he's huge. He looks like a linebacker rather than a harpist. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to talk about some of your entries. Can we do that for a few minutes? Sure. You did not mention my personal favorite cartoon, but I want to talk about that later. So we'll just tease that now. We're going to talk about my own personal favorite cartoon in the book. But let's talk about some of your entries because you just mentioned wanting to use down-to-earth language and avoiding grammatical terms in your explanations as much as you possibly can. And uh, that really comes through in one of your entries which is so simple so short it says so much with so little uh it's between you and i versus between you and me and your entry says between you and me is preferred in standard english <laughs> that's it yeah if you start talking to somebody about predicates and nominatives and stuff they're just going to say oh, get a headache at worst and just sneer and walk away yeah <laughs> if you just um you know between you and me, it's an instance of overcorrection mm -hmm. where people get this notion that somehow I is a little more proper, a little more exalted than me, and they put it in where they really shouldn't. So I just put it in that expression. And you do talk about that in other entries in the book. Right. You talk about how that works, where you have a preposition, and it is followed by a name and a personal pronoun. So Yeah. Uh, somebody spoke to Jack and me versus somebody spoke to Jack and I. You do talk about that elsewhere in the book, but I just think that's such a, a neat little kernel. Somebody wrote to object that you were saying it is preferred in standard English, as if to say uh, between you and I is acceptable, but we prefer between you and me. And uh, this person wanted the rule to stand firm regardless of any context. It has to be between you and me. <laughs> well, lots of people, especially when they're speaking and not writing, will slip into the uh, you and I or Jack and I, regardless of what the context is. And I don't think we should bristle too much at that, do you? No, and, and the most easy, popular, simple thing to say is between you and me. That's the usual way people say it. Yeah. Between you and I is people who think that they're following some obscure rule and actually they're not. Yeah. Another entry that I think says so much with so little uh, every day. And I just think that the entry is very well written. It's concise. It's simple to grasp. And it is a common error. Every day as one word versus every day as two words. And you say every day is a perfectly good adjective, as in, I'm most comfortable in my everyday clothes. The problem comes when people turn the adverbial phrase every day as two words into a single word. It is incorrect to write, I take a shower every day, where every day is one word. It should be, I take a shower every day, where every day is two two words. Yeah. Uh, I just think that's so concise and so easy to understand. You do use a grammatical term there, adverbial phrase, yes. but 
I don't think he's going to get too hung up on that point. Another way to remember it is that as a single word, every day means ordinary yeah. or usual. And every day, as a phrase, means daily. Yes, yes. And that'll help keep it straight. Yeah, every day as in everyday clothes. And your example, once again, that's another example that is uh, just really down to earth. I'm most comfortable in my everyday clothes. And you found a nice cartoon for that. The caption isn't all that striking, but the picture certainly is. Yeah. And it turns out to be from, I think, Scientific American. It was a sketch for a proposed uh, apparatus for hatters to uh, mold top hats on. And it has a whole bunch of adjustable attachments that are meant to get the size and shape of the hat exactly to fit the head of the intended wearer. Mm. Uh, and it looks pretty bizarre. And uh, you guys made that into a T-shirt, which we had for a while. And I still wear mine out sometimes. And it says on the front, uh, he wore his hat every day, but it was not an everyday hat. <laughs> well, I think it's the other way around. It was not an everyday hat, but he wore it every day. And uh, the explanation is on the back of the T-shirt. So I have to turn around so people can stand there and read the explanation of what's going on with the cartoon in the front. Yeah, and I thought it was amusing, the concept that somebody would wear that every single day. He wore his hat every day, but it was no everyday hat. Yeah. Well, okay, the image makes it all worthwhile. You have a couple of entries that are just fun for me. If one reason or other, they just were fun. And The first one is duct tape versus duct tape. First of all, I like the mistake of saying duct tape, D-U-C-K, because ducks are funny, Right. I mean, they're funny little animals and funny little birds. Yeah. <laughs> Anything that uses the word duck automatically seems humorous to me. But the original word was D-U-C-K tape. I did not know that until I we started researching this for the book. That's just amazing to me. Now, why was it called duck tape? Well, it was an adhesive tape made of linen or cotton, a kind of light canvas fabric. And I'm not sure why that fabric was called duck, but it was. So you made a tape out of duck. But um, it evolved. That didn't really make sense to people who weren't into sailing and so on. So um, it's now called duct tape, D-U-C-T tape. Um, but the problem with that is if you talk to people who deal with ventilation and air conditioning and so on, they'll tell you, don't use duct tape on your ducts. It's not safe, especially if it gets hot. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that uh, I get called duct tape partly, I think, is the silvery color uh, sort of matches the duct. Mm-hmm. Uh, but modern building codes do not consider duct tape safe for sealing up ducts. And um, there is a company now which sells it and has gone back to the original name just because it's entertaining because that's what a lot of people think it should be, D-U-C-K tape. So it's particularly uh, particularly complex. It's not something that's going to get into a lot of trouble, but um, I think most people understand that it's supposed to be duct tape now, no matter what the brand yeah, I think William Sapphire was claiming that it was used for ammo boxes. Uh, yes, yes. And you could wrap this tape around it. It would keep the water out. Maybe. That might have been a connection there with the duck. Yeah, waterproof tape. Yeah. Another really fun one 
is apostrophes. We did an entire podcast or podcasts on apostrophes. I don't really want to go over this entry, but I just, at the tail end of this entry, I want to point out something that you will not find in any other usage guide. You will not find pointers like this. And uh, this isn't the only one, but this is the one that popped in my head as a particularly fun one. At the end of the apostrophes entry, you talk about the phenomenon of using a single quote to begin words that you know require an apostrophe because you're going to be taking out the first part of the word. So, for example, tis the season. It's the holiday season, so we're going to be using that one, right? So a lot of people are going to be on their computers typing tis the season, I think. <laughs> but, yeah. but if they do and they just enter the little single quote thing on their computer – there's going to be a problem. They're going to write with a quote, and then they're going to write T-I-S, and that quote, or the apostrophe, is going to be shaped the wrong way. Right, if they have autocorrect turned on, Yeah. which most people do by default. Sure. So how do we get those apostrophes to curl the right way? Well, you give an example of, uh, for me, on a Windows machine, I can hold down the control key and hit the apostrophe key twice, and that will flip that apostrophe around the correct direction. Uh, if you're on a Mac, you can use a different technique. You can hold down the option and the shift key and then hit the right square bracket key. That sounds complicated. I do it all the time without almost thinking. But Right. If you've got it down, you've got it down. I should add that on an iPhone, if you press and hold down on their on-screen keyboard on the single quotation mark or apostrophe, whatever you want to call it, it pops up a little menu that lets you choose which way you want it to curl or whether you want it straight or whatever. Yes, and same on an Android phone. Those phone keyboards, if you press and hold, they'll give you some options for how you want it. You can do that with dashes and so on also. Right. Um I think you really get going, though, in your final sentence. <laughs> you say, if all else fails, you can type a pair of single quotation marks and then go back and delete the first one. <laughs> that will then you'll, you'll just leave the one that curls the right way and uh, move the cursor ahead and keep typing and you'll be fine. You know, that's a solution that had never occurred to me <laughs> until I read it in the book. And I know the correct keyboard combinations, but I, once in a while, will just remember, hey, you know, that works too. And that's going to be the one I remember right this minute. And I just hit that single quotation mark twice, and then I've got one that curls right around the other direction. And I do think that's something I thought up myself. I mean, I'm sure other people have discovered it, but I didn't read it anywhere. It just occurred to me one day, hey. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, go try to find that in another usage guide or any guide, I think. That's the kind of personal touch that you find in in the book. And speaking of personal touch, there, there are other entries in the book that uh, clearly hit home for you. And these are entries that you won't find in other usage guides because other usage guides are so poured over by a uh, staff of editors and a group of writers. Um, I think you won't find an entry such as music versus singing in them. Uh, but you locked into this one because uh, it kind of hit home for you. How does it work? You don't have to read the entry, but just explain to us where that came from. Well, this is actually one was suggested by my wife, who is a quite fine singer. And she had a friend who said that in her church, 
There was no music, only singing, <laughs> which made her very indignant. <laughs> and so I decided to write a little essay on how not only is singing music, singing was the preferred and dominant kind of music for a long time. And even today in pop music, uh, instrumentals are not nearly as popular except in electronica. Um, for, uh, you know, hit records and stuff, uh, singing is music. And, um, now we have acapella, both as a phenomenon being revived by the TV show and so on. I had a student tell me once, uh, they were listening to an opera and they were supposed to make a comment on it. And the student said, the singing interfered with the music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, to accomplished singers, it's a big insult to say, uh, too bad there was no music to go with your singing. Yeah. yeah, and so I actually started off by telling the story about my wife, because um, I do have to credit her for coming up with this particular one and inspiring the whole entry. Yeah, and it sounds pretentious and a cliche and so on to hear a trained operatic singer, for example, to say, my voice is my instrument. But you learn to appreciate that if you appreciate good singing. That is truly an instrument. My wife and my mother and a few other people turn up uh, identified in examples I use in the book, but there are quite a few other cases where I've just taken the name of somebody I know that I'm fond of or want to give a little tribute to and plop it in there. Um, and uh, nobody but me and people that know me very well know who they are. I think we actually talked about some of these on one of our earliest podcasts. Mm -hmm. So that's a way I keep from being too boring by using the same names over and over. I can think of one usage guide that uses a pair of painfully awkward names in all the examples. Yes. Yeah, so I try not to do that sort of thing. So you'll find occasionally an odd name. Um, my former computer lab helper, Weichi, turns up one time as uh, having to do with a harpsichord. It was actually his wife was a uh, Chinese uh, instrumentalist. It wasn't a harpsichord she played, but that would be too obscure to explain. So I just threw his name in for the entry because I liked him a lot. And I think why not be a little multicultural? You shouldn't have all Western European style names and all the examples. Yeah. Very good. Well, another aspect of the book that I like a lot is it's evident throughout that you have an affinity for science. We did a podcast episode on some of the terms from the book that were technical or especially um, related to astronomy, I think. Didn't we do one that was, uh, uh, we talked about the solstice and so on? Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Ways that people use science and math terms incorrectly there are a couple of these that uh, I'll mention. One of them is mean versus median. Uh, people often don't understand that the mean is simply the average, right? Right. And I think you see a lot of times journalists will try to distinguish between a mean and an average, not understanding that they're the same thing because they're getting mean mixed up with median. Exactly. Yeah. And median is that number right in the middle of a whole group of numbers. Right. And it's especially useful, I, I say this over and over again, you talk about the housing prices in a neighborhood, 
this is a perfect example because it doesn't every neighborhood have you know a few houses that are priced you know over a million dollars or something like that and then there's the vast majority of them that are priced in so-called the middle range and then uh, a group of them that might be lower but uh, it's more helpful in that case to not have the average skewed by those couple of houses that are astronomically higher than the others right right so it's better to know the median, which is that number right in the middle. Yeah. Half of the houses in this neighborhood are priced below this price, and half of them are priced above this price without defining what those prices are or giving specific numbers. So that mean and median thing, I find that really useful, and you make it very clear that mean means average, and don't get that confused with median. Uh Another one that we've talked about before is the backslash and the slash. And this is just my personal peeve or whatever. But I have noticed in advertising, still to this day, occasionally you'll hear somebody give a web address, go to such and such a dot com backslash, and they'll name what the ending of it is. But that's not correct. It should just be slash. I have seen one or two very rare cases where a backslash was used in a web address, but it is not normally the case. Those things are forward slashes or just simply called slashes. And I think people pride themselves on knowing the technical name. Ah, backslash. The bottom of it is on the left and it slants up toward the right at the top. It depends on how you view it. Is that part down at the bottom going back? No, it's the top part of the top that's involved. It's going ahead. Yeah. So it's a forward slash. And there are different places on your keyboard. And this one is one of those that can get you into real trouble. If you're trying to type in manually a URL, which very few people do these days, about the only time it happens is when you see a printed URL someplace. But normally you say, well, to heck with that. I'll just type some words into Google get to it Um, but if you were writing a computer program for instance and use a backslash instead of a slash or vice versa it won't work right you know it's not the same thing yeah these days a url if you do make the mistake and type a backslash the url will correct itself Uh aha and you will land in the correct place but Uh, i haven't tried that lately yeah historically that had been a problem but uh not so much a real problem these days. But in language, uh, just keep it in mind that uh, URLs have slashes, not backslashes. Uh, you have a whole area on your website that got integrated into the book, these non-errors. Right. And these are really enjoyable. And you say that this web page on your site gets is one of the most trafficked areas. Right. And uh, you'll recall that early on when we had our three-way conversation with Ingrid Tiken from the Netherlands, who studies as a linguist the odd people like me <laughs> who write usage guides, um, I challenged her by saying, okay, you generalize about the things that we inappropriately disapprove of. Uh, let me read you <laughs> the examples on my non-errors page. And almost every single one was high on her list for things that usage guides get wrong. Mm. I haven't been able to get that bunch to pay close attention <laughs> to the fact that not all usage guides are equally witless. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
But in fact, there are quite a few things like uh, not ending a sentence with a preposition that most usage guides do not approve of that rule, uh, although there's people still out in the public that think that's some kind of extraordinary law of English. Right, right. Well, a couple of them that I noted here, uh, healthy versus healthful. Uh, part of a healthy breakfast, that expression. Most people don't bristle when they hear that, but usage guide writers tend to want to be sticklers and say that should be a healthful breakfast. The breakfast can't be healthy. People can be healthy. Who really cares, right? But you point out that English adjectives connected to sensations in the perceiver of an object or event are often transferred to the object or event itself, and this goes way back. So in the 19th century, it was not uncommon to refer, for instance, to a grateful shower of rain. And we still say a gloomy landscape, a cheerful sight, and a happy coincidence. Well, why do we let those go and we fret over a healthy breakfast? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Right. The other one is hopefully, which uh, I think has officially dropped off. I think the last usage guide that was hanging on to this distinction dropped it within the last couple of years. Didn't we talk about that on the podcast? I think we did. Uh, I think the AP style guide finally said, look, if you're using the word hopefully in the sense of it is to be hoped, that is perfectly fine. Yes. I don't remember any instance of having heard someone saying, I hopefully opened the present, but was disappointed. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> Yeah. Doing something in a hopeful manner. You don't have occasion to do that. No. I'll end on one shared peeve, and this is not my only shared peeve. There's a little bit of peevishness in a usage guide, and that's allowed. This is where we expect to go for our peeves, right? <laughs> where we can find usage that we object to. But one of them that bothers me, and it bothers me not really viscerally, but it bothers me because I'm never quite sure if the person is being accurate in what they're describing. And that is using century mark hundreds versus 19th century, for example. Yeah. Uh, I'm not 100% sure if somebody has a grasp on it, uh, if they say something like, uh, well, that happened in the 18th century. Are they thinking 1800s or are they thinking 1700s? It would be correct if they were talking about the 1700s. But a lot of times uh, you'll hear something about the Civil War taking place in the 18th century, for example. It's obviously incorrect. Right. But this one is just confusing and a horrible mistake people can make because it can lead to not only this bristling response of like you're using it incorrectly but uh you could also make a real dire mistake on your history paper for example right um this one i think would be worth reading because i really tried to explain this at great length having just been through a lot of museums in europe um where things are labeled by century i reminded of this a lot yeah 1800s, 1600s, and so forth. They're not exactly errors. The problem is that they're used almost exclusively by people who are nervous about saying 19th century when, after all, the years in that century begin with the number 18. This should be simple. Few people are unclear about the fact that this is the 21st century, even though our dates begin with 20. Just stop and think about that. If you can't remember anything else about that explanation, just remind yourself that, oh, yeah, they call this the 21st century. Yeah. But it's 2017 this year. This, by the way, was an entry we had to update in the third edition. 
because originally it was had to do with the 19th and the 20th century. For most dates, you can just add one to the third digit from the right in a year, and you've got the number of its century. It took 100 years to get to the year 100. So the next 100 years, which were named 101, 102, etc., were in the second century. And that's the other way to remind yourself of it. Okay, what about that first century there? Those didn't have a 1-0 anything in front of them. It was just the year one, the year two, the year three. Actually, the people then weren't using that calendar. They weren't aware of living in the year five, for instance. (laughs) No. But in referring back to them historically, that's what the proper usage is. This also works B.C. The 400s B.C. are the 5th century B.C., And I've caught myself more than once thinking about this. I'm thinking, okay, when was the golden age of Athens? Was that the 500s? No, it was the 400s, the 5th century. Yeah. Gets a little harder going back BC, but still works. Yeah. Using phrases like 1800s as a signal to your readers that you are weak in math and history alike. That is a bit peevish. Um, I occasionally, if I feel, ah, oh, this may confuse people, I might use those myself. But most of the time, I use the numbers 1, 8, and then TH for 18th century, and uh, usually abbreviate with C period, uh, capital C. And I am very fond of the fact that Word autocorrects the TH to a superscript after the number, which looks very nice. Mm-hmm. Can't do that on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I actually do it on the website, writing the HTML code for a superscript. That is a good fallback position. If you're not certain that your listener or your reader is going to understand this distinction, you can always say in the 1800s. Nobody's going to misconstrue that. I think in academic writing, it's particularly important. If you're taking an art history class or teaching one or writing a book about it, um, you want to master being able to use the TH mm-hmm. or, or it could be the ND, the second century. Yeah. Or the RD, the third century. And then after that, you're safe with TH. Yeah. Well, I guess not the 22nd century. We're going to have to go back to ND, aren't we? Well, not us, but our successors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It won't be our problem. Unless we're talking about the future, I guess. Well, uh, again, I will say, Thank you. Thank you for keeping the website, allowing us to publish your book. And I want to end on one cartoon that we haven't talked about yet. Yes, I want to thank you for those cartoons. They really lighten the book up. All right. So lots of Thanksgiving here. Lots of Thanksgiving leftovers here. But one last little tidbit here. You have the entry on tender hooks versus tenter hooks. Right. And to be on tenter hooks, it goes back to... Uh, canvas stretching right a tent is stretched over poles you know so exactly yeah so a, a tenter is a canvas stretcher and to be on tenter hooks means to be as tense with anticipation as a canvas stretched on one so you could be on tenter hooks but to say to be on tender hooks that's an error that must be some kind of some, some kind of acorn there People must figure out, well, I'm on tender hooks. I'm not on too bad a hooks. I'm on tender hooks, right? It sounds like somebody who's into a very mild form of S&M. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or I always think of the Frank Sinatra song, right? The, the tender trap. Uh-huh. 
uh, my cartoon, I found a simple picture of a trout. Very easy to imagine. The caption says, there's no such thing as a tender hook. That's the first thing you learn in trout school. <laughs> my personal favorite. And it was pointed out to me that uh, we use that cartoon on the back of the box for when we would sell the box calendar, the Common Errors in English Usage printed box calendar, which was always featured at Barnes & Noble. And one year we had particularly brisk sales on it. And the editor at Barnes & Noble said, you know, I think it's because we put that Tender Hooks cartoon on the back. <laughs> well, and when uh, you talk about popular music, the thing that really gets you into buying it is the hook, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Well, Paul, once again, thanks. And I think that's enough Thanksgiving leftovers. We'll pick up another topic next time. Okay. So long, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.